This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Trailer for sale or rent Rooms to let 50 cents No phone, no pool, no pets Ain't got no cigarettes I work two hours of pushing broom Fives an eight by twelve four bedroom I'm a man of means by no means King of the Road Historic Souvenirs presents A Cyclist's Intrepid Journeys Adapted from his book Pedal Power Roy Sinclair wrote 12 books based on life lived to the full A career extending from the National Film Unit To part-time as Christchurch Heritage tram driver To photojournalist with the press Short but not too big around I'm a man of me King of the road. Remember Mrs. Ogston, the young wife whose husband serves as station master in the New Zealand Railways Department. She's gardening round their railway house when she realises her precious diamond ring must have slipped off her slender finger as she threw weeds into the adjoining horse paddock. Even after moving on from that appointment, the couple would return every so often to search in vain by the boundary fence. But there's another crisis of their past that directly implicates Charlie Ogston. He's offered a promotion to be station master at Otira Station. In its day, the tiny town is boosted as a construction camp serving tunnelers building the 8.5-kilometre Otira Tunnel. It begins in 1908, and extends till after the intervening World War I, not opening till 1923. Once trains can carry cargo quickly through the tunnel under the Southern Alps, the horse-drawn coaches of yesteryear are redundant. Since the highway over Arthur's Pass opened in 1866, wagons could carry the coal, timber and gold from a west coast mine or forest over to Canterbury and beyond. The Otera Tunnel, under the Southern Alps, revolutionises South Island transport. And this is what attracts Charlie Ogston to the prospect of becoming Otera Railway Station Master, even though the settlement's in decline. It may be the dramatic descent that does it. When Charlie brings his wife to see the prospects at Otera, Mrs Ogston takes one look at the town and says... Well, dear, take the job if you want to, but if you do, you're on your own. I'm on the relentless climb out of Otero by road, overtaken by crawling trucks, their drivers having their own problems with the steep grades. It's a relief to reach the viaduct. Built in just two years on the brink of the new millennium, 
The viaduct averts danger of rockfalls or slips on the original road, which is New Zealand's first alpine road, our highest altitude main highway. Before any Europeans set foot in the Alps, Māori engaged in trading Pōnamu, Greenstone, over what comes to be called Arthur's Pass. To make the route suitable for stagecoaches, a thousand men worked with axe, pick and shovel, crowbar, wheelbarrow, rock drill and explosive to construct the road in 1865. At times the going is so steep my bike's front wheel lifts from the road, so I dismount and walk. The gradient hits 16.9% along a stretch of road a shelter protects from falling rocks and scree. Now the new viaduct swerves across a valley to a safer alignment. Reaching the top of the pass, named after explorer and surveyor, Arthur Dobson, I cast my eyes along a familiar skyline of mountains I've climbed, wondering if I'll feel again the urge to scramble to such heights. Up here, clouds race close overhead. The cold can be intense. Yet, spaced along Arthur's Pass, lived men responsible for the regular maintenance of the road who come to know all the regular stagecoach drivers by name. They have no 21st century counterpart. Near the Southern Alps Saddle, where stands a memorial to Arthur Dobson's part in opening access over the main divide, is another tribute to the past. Jack's Hut. It's immaculately restored. A real roadman's dwelling, the last sample left of stalwart workers living far from their families to act in any emergency and to ensure the integrity of the then-metalled Arthur's Pass. It was a Spartan way of life, in keeping with New Zealand's last scheduled horse-drawn stagecoach service in 1923, the end of an era for Arthur's Pass. How Jack the Roadman, whose hut is preserved for posterity, might envy what modern life provides in these rugged regions. Radio and telecommunication. Bitumen roads. Spectacular civil engineering of viaducts and waterfalls redirected into chutes. I don't mind if I do take advantage of this superb modern carriageway and mechanics. Engaging all those gears and mountain bike boosts, I let it rip down the contours of the Canterbury side of the Southern Alps, clocking a, a passable 65 kilometres per hour. Downhill is where the Youth Hostels Association of New Zealand opened in 1948 the first hostel its own members own. It meets their aims of bringing together people of different backgrounds, especially the young, to encourage sharing ideas and to explore their environment. It's the philosophy of a German schoolteacher, Richard Sherman, since 1909 when, leading a party of pupils on a country excursion, they're caught by bad weather and have nowhere conducive to shelter the night. Coming to believe that friendship, forming links and understanding across ethnic and national boundaries, is the way to peace, he founds the German Youth Hostels Association after World War I. Thanks to the enthusiasm of Cora Wilding, New Zealand follows the German example 
Lex, as the founding president of the Youth Hostel Association of New Zealand, none other than one who trod the back country of the Southern Alps, Sir Arthur Dudley Dobson, who surveys the provincial government of Canterbury, then including Westland, decides, demonstrates the importance of achieving open access to the West Coast goldfields. The 250 kilometres of the whole project between Porter's Pass and Hukitika is ready in July 1866. Speeding downhill in cold, wet and windy weather brings me shivering and drenched to the Arthur's Pass Youth Hostel. A swift change of clothes, fresh and dry from my bike's pannier, restores civility, leaving my wet clothes steaming beside the YHA's big wood burner. I head to the village for a promised pint, open steak sandwich and camaraderie of wobbly kia cafe and bar. Next morning, although it's early summer, patches of snow still cling to craggy tops rising above the scree-covered slopes and beech forests to the north. It contrasts with the view rolling towards me that might be described as drab to the south. That may be why some settlers presumably decided to add a dash of colour to the cheerless landscape. There's a popular story of an older woman gleefully spreading lupin seeds through the Mackenzie country just as tourist traffic began to bounce over the horizon looking to explore Lake Tekapo and Auraki Mount Cook. Her motive being to brighten up their experience, she sows Russell lupin seed amid the gravel roadside and Atsak landscape. Nature does the rest. The evidence is plain to see. So plain, in fact, that the Department of Conservation is dismayed that Russell Lupin spreads so readily on roadsides and in gravel shingles of braided riverbeds. Their blooms are brilliant in hue. A bluish purple, orange, yellow and white attract the eye. The colours spark controversy. They are not the least like the authentic dull brown tussock landscape they invaded. Originally coming from Europe and North America, these lupins learnt through evolution how to explode their seed pots efficiently. Over at least two to three metres, the lupins cast their seed, seed that's sure to thrive. Seed that's sure to thrive with the lupin's ability to harness nutrients, resist drought and cold. Retired agri-research scientist David Scott of Tekopo stated in a media interview that Russell Lupin shows promise of becoming a long-lived and nutritious sheep feed that needs little fertiliser. On the other hand, Doc's keen to undo good-intentioned covert sowing of Russell Lupin to beautify the upper Waimakariri catchment and other rivers or land this Lupin hybrid invades. Dock officials fear it threatens to damage the delicate ecosystems and already endangered native plants. Lupins have been so long a part of our alpine scene that travellers expect to enjoy seeing them. Just try buying a scenic calendar of the South Island that doesn't feature the lupin landscape. As I pedal on, I ponder the predicament in which Dock finds itself in efforts to preserve the natural environment. 
To be consistent, they should eliminate fish species introduced to our conservation land, such as salmon and trout. Now that would cause an uproar. On the highway, big rigs assail us with horns blasting cyclists, almost forcing me off the carriageway as they sweep by, hell-bent on maintaining a schedule. Sadly, Schedules have little respect for common road courtesies or even rules of the road. It would be different in the old days. Even if Cobb and Co. coaches had a timetable taking passengers across the Southern Alps, people realise floods, tempest, earthquake, slips and washouts won't happen according to schedule. All one can do is go with the flow. If a Ford's in flood, the coachman might propose to offload his passengers, take the coach across empty. Leaving the coach safe on the other side, the driver would return with just enough horses for his passengers who, hopefully, have the courage to ride a horse across without getting too wet. Coaches mainly used five horses, three across at the front, leaders, and two nearest the coach, wheelers. They are changed every 20 to 30 kilometres at staging posts where replacement horses are stabled in charge of a groom who's responsible for their welfare and cleanliness of coach and harness. Staging posts keep forage for the horses, straw for bedding, catering for as many as six Clydesdale to a large wagon. Staging posts keep forage for the horses, straw for bedding, catering for as many as six Clydesdales to a large wagon. Horses hauling wagons travel at slower pace than stagecoach horses, without the need of so many spells as coach horses. Generally, it's common for staging post to cater for meals and even overnight accommodation for the coach passengers. For the convenience of passengers, some stagecoaches release carrier pigeons with messages Messages for staging post cooks to get advance notice of how many meals to prepare for incoming coach passengers well before they arrive for dinner. Depending on the terrain, stagecoaches might average around 12 to 15 kilometres per hour on the highway. Rugged roads occasionally call for the need to go slowly or stop. This is achieved by a rudimentary brake consisting of a wooden pad pressing against the steel rim of a rear wheel. On going down a steep hill, with sharp rise on the other side, the horses could be cantered down the hill to gain sufficient momentum to carry the loaded coach up the incline on the other side. I do the same on the bicycle. Transport radically alters once motor cars first come into use around 1912. Newman's coach lines of Nelson purchased their first Cadillac car with canvas hood in 1911, and Hawke's Bay Motor Company buy second-hand Cadillacs from America in 1912 for the Napier to Topo run. This enables them to complete the run in one long day, rather than the two days it takes by horsepower to coach. The economy of introducing public motor transport is significant. With only one driver and a part of a mechanic's time, a service car with lengthened chassis to accommodate more passengers can be kept on the road. A horse-powered coach requires five men and 50 horses, allowing for the ones at staging posts and in training. 
The horse-drawn coach may travel only half the distance in a day as does the service car. By 1917, most horse-drawn coach services are replaced by motor buses, with only a very few routes keeping horsepower as a backup when the roads are too bad for motor vehicles to cope. Incidentally, the last horse-drawn cab didn't come off the road in Christchurch until 1940, but with the Otera Tunnel linking Canterbury and the West Coast by rail under the Southern Alps in 1923, horses for public transport are eclipsed by motor and steam power. As I watch the Alpine village awake at the dawn of another day at Arthur's Pass, I see two cyclists set out on the road to Christchurch. I'll not meet them on the way, as it's a comfortable hour before I follow in the same direction. Naturally, it's a pleasant surprise to come upon them on a hill between Broken River and Porter's Pass. One is trying to fix a flat tyre. The other is a novice rider, a tad distressed. Inflating its inner tube isn't working, for the tyre is obstinately as flat as before. I suspect their makeshift tyre levers have pinched a new hole as the tube is refitted to the wheel. I assure them the tube can be repaired. It won't take long. But before I can start, a van stops to offer help. Two handsome lads, one being Belgian, get out to clear space in the van so both shapely women and their bikes can fit. But not me. That's life. Just joking. Everybody's going out and having fun. I'm just a fool for staying home and having none. A lovesick fool who's blind and just can't see. Oh, lonesome me. Bad mistake I'm making just by hanging around. I know that I should have some fun and came to town. Lovesick fool who's blind and just can't see. Oh, lonesome me. I bet she's not like me. She's out in fantasy free. Flirting with the boys with all her charms. But I still love her so. And brother, don't you know. I'd welcome her right back here in my arms. Well, there must be some way I can lose these lonesome blues. Forget about the past and find me somebody new. A lovesick fool who's blind and just can't see. Oh, lonesome. She's not like me, she's out and fancy free Flirting with the boys with all her charm But I still love her so, and brother don't you know I'd welcome her right back here in my arms Well, there must be some way I can lose these lonesome blues Forget about the past and find me somebody new a lovesick fool who's blind and just can't see Oh, lonesome me Oh, lonesome me 
I've still another 15 kilometres to ride to reach Porter's Pass. With no cafes, self-sufficiency is the order of the day. Along the way, my mind begins to wander. My surroundings are turning barren, the mountains deeply eroded. The pioneer sheep farmer's high hopes of making a profit may be turning to dust from overzealous stocking rates of the past. Or were they overrun with rabbits? Or hit by the economic recession? Here, the weird rock formations featuring in that fearsome battle scene in the Chronicles of Narnia movie. Steadily, I pedal uphill, approaching Porter's Pass. Once over the mountain pass, I happily coast nearly 20 kilometres down to Springfield, a town at the foot of the Southern Alps, a gateway to several ski fields, and where the Midland Rail Heritage Trust volunteers have a place on railway premises to preserve what they may to convey the mystique around rail, until the Ulterra Rail Tunnel linked Canterbury and West Coast in 1923, the stagecoaches stopped at Springfield Hotel, but soon the traveller's focus shifts over the road to the railway station that soon acquires a reputation for serving excellent refreshments to break the long haul up to the alpine heights of Arthur's Pass. Back at Springfield, I spot a bank of black cloud bearing down on a momentary splash of sunlight that lights the landscape. I lament having to break the bike speed down to 50 kilometres per hour to comply with the sign on the outskirts of town. No need to rush. I'm already snug inside one of Springfield's oldest dwellings, Smiley's Hostel, when the thunder peals and the first drops of rain bounce off the corrugated iron roof. This time I'll not get a drenching. In fact, I'm in the land of luxury, the hostel haven to the bullock drovers in the 1870s is now haven to me. A soft, made-up bed and the company and conversation of the proprietors Colin and Kiko. Her influence is seen in the many Japanese language books on the shelves of the hostel and an Ofuro soaking hot tub experience in what we might call a Japanese wooden bath. Also the offer of sushi food Renovation of the original residence preserves its pioneer exterior and the historic atmosphere in the dormitories. Keiko's husband, a volunteer fireman in Springfield, so responds to the call to duty that interrupts their evening. The house is on file at Bailey Spur. Bailey Spur! I passed it on my way from Arthur's Pass today. It's way over Porter's Pass, almost all the way to Arthur's Pass. In its heyday, it's a staging post for the coaches which, if the Waimakariri River is in flood, blocking their onward passage. Stagecoach passengers would likely bide their time, accommodated in the original hotel as guests of the flamboyant host, Fred Cochran. On the night of his farewell, the historic hotel burnt down. Yes, hoping this alarm of a dwelling fire will have a better outcome, but, frankly, having to rush nearly an hour's drive to get to the fire on Bailey Spur, will flames have done their damnedest before Springfield's volunteer brigade gets to the scene? Before heading off from Springfield next morning, 
I cross the road outside the hostel to view the striking limestone monument to a celebrity who was one born here, Riwi Ali, making a name for himself in China in the 1920s. He joins the Shanghai Fire Brigade. Later, he works with Chinese to develop their business cooperatives and schools. I'm amused that this boy, named Riwi after a Maori chief, is obliged by his father not to go to the same school where he teaches, but to walk daily to a distant school instead. How could a father reject teaching his own son? Having paid respects to Riwi Ali, I'll head home. Cycling past Sheffield, I see the railway's goods shed is gone. On to Darfield, where rail has been quick to respond to shifting market forces. In 1875, coal was king as fuel, and up a branch line to Whitecliffs lie lignite deposits. Mines are many in the vicinity, and bridges built to bring out by rail not coal alone, but about a thousand tons of wheat a year by the 1890s. It was too good to last. Economic challenges to the branch line arise as coal mines close or cut back production. In 1962, it's over. All that remains of the railway at Whitecliffs is a raised water tank that used to refill the steam engine's boilers and the engine shed. The town of Darfield fares well. Fonterra channels its massive production of milk powder to a central railway siding. From there, 85,000 tonnes of milk powder a year go by train to the Christchurch ports. One train alone carries the freight equivalent of 90 trucks a day at seasonal peaks. It realises the economies of scale and lowers fuel emissions. From Littleton, Fonterra's product railed from Darfield is bound for China, Southeast Asia and the Middle East a considerable contribution to Canterbury's export earnings. It's a morning to enjoy a coffee break, a relaxing read of the newspaper, whilst forgetting the efforts still required to reach our abode in suburban Christchurch. One may ride alone, yet not feel lonely, in the wider fraternity of the world's travellers by bike. I think of colleagues I'd met or corresponded with, among them... Anne Musto. She's the British cyclist, around-the-world author, whose exploits are acknowledged in Guinness World Records. After her strenuous bike ride through South America, she strikes a lousy summer in New Zealand, so, with limited time, she opts to go by train and bus journey, meanwhile leaving her bicycle in my care. Surreptitiously, I take it for a spin, with its lightweight wheels, it takes off down Bowenvale roads as if caught in a favourable breeze. But the further I get from home, the more difficult her condor bike is to control. Twice. I am convinced that condor tries to toss me off, like a horse might on, on detecting it's ridden by a, a novice. Not wishing to crash Anne's bike, all myself, I turn homeward, giving the condor a thorough clean applying a few drops of oil and tightening a bolt or two. I store the bicycle, leaning against the front room bookcase, with all Anne's book titles precariously on a pannier. 
After that, Condor and I enjoy a companionable relationship. Recalling my own ride, I give silent support to those colourful lupins, along with heartfelt thanks to all of those Department of Conservation people, past and present, who make New Zealand a destination desired by the world's nomadic bicycle travellers. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.